Wow. That was excellent work, Cam. I feel like I want to go slam dance and get in a mosh pit right now. You are watching the Drive Time News Blast, Propaganda Report Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley, and that intro, again, that was Cam's work. Great job. It looks awesome. Cam, the co-host of The Mad Ones, joining me to help out again today. The top story that's been going on in the news today, I'm sure you guys have heard, is that Steve Bannon has been found guilty. He was found guilty on two counts of contempt of Congress, one over his refusal to appear for a deposition with the January 6th committee, you know, that really serious committee that's really seeking justice, and the other one over his refusal to produce documents for the committee. Now, these are both both misdemeanor charges that carry a maximum of two years in prison and a $200,000 fine and a minimum of 30 days in jail. He's not. He's probably not going to get too much time in, in jail. It'll probably be closer to the minimum than the maximum there. And he is going to appeal the judgment. The last time anyone was convicted of contempt of Congress, I believe, was 1974 in the aftermath of Watergate, which they always love making these Watergate parallels. So this is a nice little nice little piece of the narrative for the January 6th committee as they concluded their first, their first season, so to speak, of the hearings last night. And then they had this little button on it today with Bannon, which is kind of like they're going to signal to the people in the future that, well, look, if you, you get subpoenaed by us, then you better come or you could you could end up getting banned and you don't want that. And that is kind of what this is this is being portrayed as a win for the January 6th committee and their subpoena power, not just their power, but the subpoena power of Congress, because it says that their subpoena power now comes with the force of law. And if you defy them, you could, in fact, go to jail. And, you know, this obviously could act as a, a signal to other people who might testify, because here we have. A situation now with the January 6th committee. Say you get a subpoena. So you have a choice. You can refuse to be de- deposed or you can go de- go be deposed. And what happens when you go be deposed here, especially if you object to what they're doing, is they will depose you for probably hours upon hours, which I saw one of the committee members saying that they do that. They keep you there for hours and hours and hours. And the reason they do that is because all, all they need is one little moment. All they need is one little clip that they can take out of context and present to the committee during the hearing, you know, maybe 30 seconds out of two and a half hours of a deposition, and say, this is evidence of the criminal activity that we're saying happened on January 6th, even if the broader context of whatever that person says would say the complete opposite. So they keep people there long enough to do that and to potentially bait them into saying something that they could then be framed or entrapped, basically, uh, for lying to Congress and then face federal charges there. So it's kind of a tough situation if you do get subpoenaed unless you choose a third option, which, so the first two options there, I get subpoenaed, I either choose maybe going to jail or maybe going to jail. Either of those options there. The third option being just pleading the fifth the whole time, like Michael Flynn did. When So they, they showed Michael Flynn's video during the hearing, and he just pled the fifth to every question. So if you choose that option, then your video of you pleading the fifth is then presented to the by the committee and in the media as evidence of your guilt because you have something to hide. So this is how these propagandists do this. They set up situations that are lose-lose-lose for anybody that they can kind of rope in to agreeing to their little, you know, their little show trial here. And I don't know that anybody's going to actually be afraid of Bannon getting 
arrested here because it's not going to be a, a harsh penalty. It's just not. I, I think the right. last time somebody actually went to jail for this, if I recall correctly, was like 1932. And maybe he will, and that'll be like a that'll be like a, a symbol. You know, he spends a he probably wants to go to jail to be honest because we talked about this the other day in the show. The going to to jail or prison for a short period of time by activist leaders that is a specific tactic that is promoted by Hitler. Yes, also Solinsky. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very explicit in Solinsky's Rules for Radicals book, which he, you know, you, you read Rules for Radicals right now, it's always a relevant book, and it's just kind of, it, you know, it sheds light on everything we see right now with the way that politicians and all their activists get attention. But Bannon's probably happy about that. You know, he's not, he's not going to have to pay much money. The guy's very wealthy. You know, he was like an executive producer on Seinfeld. Sometimes people forget. But him going to jail, is just, it's just going to enable him to to fundraise off that and his yeah. podcast shot to the top of the podcast like list in the past week because of this this is the type of thing that people like bannon are all about they love getting up there they love getting the spotlight put on them being real dramatic saying uh, rhetorical things not not that i disagree with everything bannon says or agree with i mean a lot of things that bannon says i agree with but make no mistake about it he's not a victim here he's very much putting himself in that position of of being the the martyr so to speak and he will be financially rewarded for this little scenario. I guarantee it. And that's what everybody's talking about in the news today. I, I think this is one of those occasions where, to me, it's very clear that both sides of this come out as big winners for their own personal agendas. Right. Well, and that, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember when January 6th was happening? And even before that, when they were talking about Bannon, they were always talking about how horrible his crimes were. And they were, especially after January 6th, that it was espionage that he was conducting. He was talking to people from other countries and, and it was treason because he was a part of January 6th. But he, yeah. like I saw, I, I found a list of tweets not that long ago. Um, well, like a couple hours, I don't mean like weeks, but uh, a <laughs> list of tweets of people on the left who were, who had said that they thought he was going to go down for treason or espionage and he was going to be um, executed. Because of this. But nope. <laughs> two two months and some fines, probably. <laughs> he was going to be executed because of rejecting a subpoena from Congress? <laughs> That's what people said. Well, they, they thought, you know, they're going to get him for this. And then they, then that Mueller, he's going to find all of the things he needs to put him away for good. Dude, so the Mueller report. I don't remember when that came out. Was that 2018 or 2019? Right. I, I can't remember. But I, I, what I do remember when the Mueller report came out is there was this theater around Atlanta. I won't say their name, but very progressive oriented. And they had dramatic act outs of, of the Mueller report. They just did these dramatic readings of them. They had all their people come in because they really wanted to get the message across. Of, I'm sure they ignored all the footnotes where it basically said none of this is based on evidence. But I just thought <laughs> – I, I remember seeing some of the marketing emails from it. Some of my friends at that theater who weren't didn't really – didn't really like that they were doing that. Where it told me about it, and I was like, "Wow, this, these people are their their brains have been poisoned. That they they feel they need to put on a, a almost a shift like dramatic display that we're seeing by the January six hearings, yeah. where they're they're doing this stuff." There's one other thing about this uh, Bannon hearing or Bannon conviction that I found interesting in the reporting on it anyway. And actually, before that, it is worth noting I think that. Congress does not have the power to enforce a subpoena. They cannot do that themselves. They have to go through the Justice Department. And 
that's what they did here. So they recommended this to the Justice Department. Justice Department decides if they're going to take it or not. In this case, they did. And then they go on to uh, do the prosecution to Bannon. So I just think that tells you kind of where the Department of Justice stands when they're taking a a case that's involved with this January 6th. I mean, this whole thing is a facade. It's an embarrassment. And the fact that the Justice Department is pursuing that, somebody who... One, he said he wasn't going to agree with the subpoena in the beginning, but then he did later come on and say he would agree to it, but that was too little too late. Too little too late, which I, I can't, quite, can't quite wrap my head around that aspect of it. He said he would come and talk to you, but you're saying, no, 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 we, we wanted you to come talk to us earlier, so not anymore. You're going to get prosecuted, so we can then use this. Both sides are going to use this to fundraise, actually. They will both make a lot of money off of this, but... The fact that the actual Justice Department got involved in this, that's the real embarrassment here. We know that this is a show trial and it's meant to influence public opinion, but when you have the, the guys that are actually try, are supposed to be responsible for pursuing actual justice, getting in on this, this joke, then that's, yeah, that's, that's how you know where they stand. And Do you know what it reminds me of? What? Roger Stone's conviction. It does. It really does, yeah. They, they, when they because pray... He, uh, Imagine getting conv- – I didn't know that lying to the FBI was a felony or whatever. Like how, how does that work? How, how can they compel you to, to speak truly outside of being under oath in court? Right, and at this point, we see how people can be set up. We see how yeah. questions can be asked vaguely, how they can have an interpret. So they can assume something is factual that's not. They can assume a lie is a fact, and if somebody has asked a question about it, and they, that person tells the truth, and the Justice Department is the one operating based on the lie, then according to them, you're lying. And so it's yep. really, it's just such an easy weapon that they can use to kind of intimidate anybody they want. Again, Roger Stone also, Roger Stone I think is probably doing okay. Roger Stone is also not the most trustworthy person in the world. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that. It was on Netflix. It was called, I believe it was called Get Me Roger Stone. It was uh, kind of a documentary from a couple of years ago. Have you ever seen it? I haven't. Yeah, you should watch it. He he was he like prides himself on being a a dirty political actor. Like he he likes to get involved in the, the uh, political activism and, and just fight. And it goes through all of this time when he first started working in politics with Richard Nixon and. You know, he talks about his first dirty trick that he played in politics, uh, which I think he says like during the fifth grade in the lunchroom or something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but yeah. So these guys, these guys are all political actors with an agenda who know what they're doing. Bannon would not have done this. He would not have embraced the role of a martyr. His statement after the conviction was one of like he's. I like watching Bannon because he's funny to me because he's just so ridiculous. Sometimes he says things that are true, but they're surrounded by just a bunch of rhetorical, dramatic stuff that, that he's going to fundraise off of. And he's up there and he's like, "I just want to say that I respect the jury for their decision. The jury, my peers, they they came to that conclusion. I respect it, and I just want to say I respect the Constitution. I stand with Trump." I stand with Trump, and this fight isn't over. This fight, and he gave like a little, like he was George Washington speaking to the troops, and they're about to go into battle on the front lines. That's how he always speaks. You know, every time he talks, it's like just just a fight with this guy, which can be funny to watch. But if people don't realize that that's what he's doing, then they can take it seriously, and that can actually cause people to kind of lose their minds and, and lead to real conflict. But the reporting on this, so we had. 
I just noticed this. I just thought this was strange. It was just real strange to me. CNN and I think it was either ABC or CBS. I'm going to play the clip, so we'll see which one it was. They both reported on Bannon's reaction during the, the, the ruling. So when the jury stood up, they deliberated for three hours. They came out and they, they gave their ruling. They were reporting on how Bannon re- was reacting in real time when that happened. And they said opposite things. They literally said, I'm, here, I'm going to show you what they said. The first one is going to be CNN. They're, they're reporting on how Bannon reacted to the verdict. Steve Bannon has been found guilty on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress. Uh, he smiled and smirked. My colleague Caitlin Poland says when the verdict was read, she was in the courtroom as this was happening. So I think we can see uh, this former White House chief strategist is just as defiant as ever. You know, with this. Okay, so that there, I believe that. I, you know, possibility. Yeah. Look, possibility. I don't know if we played this clip yesterday. We, we might not have got to it, but. The whole idea of plausibility is the, is the entire basis of propaganda. And just because something plausible doesn't mean it's not propaganda. But I, right. I believe that that's the way that Bannon would react to this. The way that he has acted this entire time is in like, I'm going to be defiant. I'm going to be the one who is oppressed. And, and I'm going to laugh in the face of this, of this wrongdoing. Yeah. And I buy that. Now, here's how, <laughs> here's how I think CBS, they reported on the exact same thing. Kate Chow for us. Thank you. We're getting a little bit of color from inside the courtroom. ABC, excuse me. From from our team in there telling us that Steve Bannon was stone-faced when the verdict was read and that his attorney seemed (laughs) deflated. I don't know what happened. Yeah, right. I don't don't know what happened. Maybe they looked at different times. They just happened to look over at Bannon because we all have micro micro expressions. I'm sure it took them, what, maybe 30 seconds, 40 seconds to read the full verdict. It was only two charges. So I guess in that 40 second span, Bannon both looked stone faced and he also defiantly was smiling in the face of of what was happening to him. So that wasn't the only thing that they said was opposite. It was strange. So CNN also reported. Their whole thing was Bannon didn't have a defense. He did nothing. He defended himself in no way. Zero defense, and, and that was their reporting on it. A- ABC and other outlets, well, he did have a defense, and his defense was and he, that he used that, the fact that he did comply a little bit before this trial. He did say he would go in there, and then he also, I think part of his defense was he didn't know the timeline of, of when he was able to reply, and I don't know. Either way, it was just blatantly opposite reporting by both of these networks it's which is interesting i understand that people can be in a courtroom and they can see different things at different times and that could lead them to different interpretations but i also understand that the news reports things based on their agenda not based on what really happened so i just found that you know odd that they kind of went in opposite directions there is it just me or does steve bannon strike you as the sort of man that always leaves something on his face after he eats like mustard in the corner of his mouth or oh, i mean like I, I feel like the corner of his mouth is probably prime real estate for whatever he's eaten ever he has a closet full of of food stained shirts there's no doubt about that i can yeah. absolutely see that yeah. i'm just saying you know when he was at breitbart there was some meeting someday and he had a he had barbecue sauce like down to here on his chin and he was just powering through, having no idea that he'd eaten like a slob that day. And that's the thing about his perception, the way that he presents himself to the public. 
I, so I have longer hair. I've had long hair for a while. On and off in my life, I've had long hair. And, and then there's been times where I've had short hair. And one of my friends, he used to joke with me, because you know, I'm, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist. And when I have long hair and I'm a conspiracy theorist, it's like, oh, well, there's another long-haired, crazy conspiracy theorist just running <laughs> his mouth. But when I have short hair, it's like, oh, well, this guy... He so it's like he's like people will take you more seriously when your hair is short, and he's not wrong, uh, you know, uh, in in certain groups of that. But it's funny. It's like if you're a conspiracy theorist, don't look like a conspiracy theorist is the takeaway there. And Bannon just looks like a crazy wild man. That, but yeah. he also is a smart guy. You know, he's, he look. I say it again. He was like an executive producer on Seinfeld. You know, even though he's according to the media, the most evil racist Nazi on the planet, he was an executive producer on Seinfeld. He knows what he's doing. Like, he knows how to rile people up, and his his show, The War Room, if you've ever listened to it, it's it's he has good information on there. Garland Favrito's actually been on there before, but he is a little ridiculous in it in the way that he does things sometimes. So, I, I don't know. I, all right, to Roger Stone. Yeah, Roger Stone and Steve Bannon can kind of go hand in hand. They really can. Yeah. They're, they're very different styles. Like, Roger Stone... I don't know if you know this, but you know that he like had a scandal years and years ago <laughs> about looking for swinger partners for his wife to like, mm. like so he could like watch people sleep with his wife. It, it's oh. yeah. Roger Stone is a colorful guy. There's no doubt about it. Um, but he 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 makes no qualms about that. He just he has a he has a complete back tattoo of Richard Nixon. Have you ever seen this? <laughs> I've heard him say it, but I've never seen it. He's got a whole room in his house, apparently. Well, this is what he shows during that documentary that is dedicated to Richard Nixon because he just adores Richard Nixon. I mean, to each his own, but uh, uh, look, I, I, look, I think Michael Jordan is like the greatest basketball player of all time. And I used to video record his his final season, most of his games, because I, I just, I, I loved the way he played basketball. And one thing I never did was I never got a back tattoo of Michael Jordan on myself. I, I never went that far with my hero but worship. Here's a question. Why not? You think I should go ahead and do that right now? A grown yeah. man say, hey, check out my back tattoo of Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did put up the tattoo if people who are watching want to see this thing. Yeah, that's a back ah! tattoo. Look at that. You know why he did that though? He 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 showed that back tattoo, and that is what that does. That looks photoshopped, but he actually he shows that off during his documentary. These and he did that because he wanted to show off his back. Is what he did. He probably he probably did a bunch of trap exercises or something before that, and then <laughs> say, you know, this is a good time to show off my Richard Nixon tattoo after my uh my got my traps looking good. Okay, <laughs> so I have another story, but. I know we got a story we were teased a little bit yesterday that you brought that was definitely interesting about the 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 SSRI medication. The state of depression. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us do about it. Go ahead and do that. Yeah, okay, let's, let's do it. Let's dive in. Let's talk um, so this is actually kind of um could be world shaking research that was just concluded out of the um University College of College London, a uh, lady named Joanna Moncrief and a lot of her other science scientists and researchers uh, have come to the conclusion that there's no clear evidence whatsoever that um, depression comes from a chemical imbalance in the brain. So uh, <clears throat> the way they put it here, 
Uh, scientists have called into question the widespread use of antidepressants over after a major review found no clear evidence that low serotonin levels are responsible for depression. This goes against the entire mental health medicine field, big the phar- the pharmaceutical companies, because they yep. give out antidepressant pills like Tic Tacs. Um, so yeah, look, so I I was uh, diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder when I was like 20 years old. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a little weird. I know that, but like, I remember reading about it and, and, and them talking about it and saying the chemical imbalancing. And my first thoughts about that, and I used to talk to people about this all the time. I was like, people talk about chemical imbalance, but what, what is the chemical balance that we're basing this off of? Show me right. the, the chemically balanced person that you're basing. Because how can you be chemically imbalanced if we don't know what the chemical balance is, what the starting place is? And I've never seen that starting place. And so I was always skeptical of these types. Of, and I understand that we, we do all have issues, whatever, for however they're caused or, or you know, however the best way to treat them. And I, I certainly, I, I can be, uh, I, can, I definitely used to be, when it comes to obsessive compulsive disorder, absolutely. My hands during the winter, I'd have, they'd be cracked and bleeding all the time because I couldn't stop washing them. And that, that, was, that was a problem I had when I was younger. And oh. the way that I got over that was not medication. It, it was when I really started doing improv every single night and doing comedy every single night, and the places I went were just dirty as hell. And and I was just had to deal with it. And the more I dealt with it, the less I cared. And Immersion that kind of just yeah, exactly. So go ahead. Oh no, but but the, some of the numbers, and this is particularly out of England. Um, and but I just looked at the numbers over in the world, the global numbers, and it's it's essentially the same. But um, one in six adults are on SSRIs, and two uh, percent of teenagers in England are prescribed them. So, uh, many, many people take antidepressants because they've been led to believe their, their depression has a biochemical cause, but this new research suggests this belief is not grounded in evidence. These are really strong statements that she's making. Um, she's, she says it's always difficult to prove a negative, but I think we can safely say that after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there's no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by low, lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin. And so there are all of these people on the planet, let's say, uh, what was it? About 18% of the world that are on antidepressants right now. And a lot of people, when they take antidepressants, they have some side effects that are terrifying. I mean, it, look at uh, what oh, yeah. was the one? Um, I mean, some of them were some people think that they cause people to kind of lose their minds and kill people in certain well, instances. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think I don't know which I think it was Prozac, maybe. Let me think. Um, but there was, there was, um, yeah, Prozac. There was one drug that if you actually look up videos in like the eighties, when it started getting big, people were, or nineties, uh, I don't know. Uh, people were going to court and talking about how one of the side effects for the drug is suicidal ideation within the first few weeks of taking it. And so a lot of people would have killed themselves because they started taking this drug and it pushed them in that direction. So you can see, you can find videos of people talking about their dead father, their dead mother, all because of this drug. And so we have, we have these kind of side effects throughout all of this stuff. And it's all, I think, kind of grounded in over-sciencing things. 
like assuming that every single thing we have that's wrong with us has some physical component that is ill and it's something we can fix through yeah. drugs and i don't think right. that that's yeah, true no, well that's it you're right it's just that's exactly what i was thinking while you were talking about that is it's this idea that we want a you know how can i fix it give me a pill to fix it not that right. not that they don't help somebody i'm sure i mean there's people that stuff like this has helped i've, I've some people that i know they they Say, they think they believe they've been, you know, really helped by stuff like this. I, for a very short period of time, when I was younger, I took Zoloft. I did not like it. I did not like the way it made me feel. And I don't know if it's a, people's bodies react different, but I do know people feel like it's helped. But I think, for me anyway, I, I think a problem with this kind of the culture around psychiatry and mental health problems is that we've been conditioned as a society to say, Where's the pill? Where's the fix? Where's the easy fix? Right. When, while they might help, so they might help some people. They might have negative effects for other people, and the long term effects, I don't know. But I think the real fix, or at least the the foundation of some of these, is like the talk therapy. It is right. really under getting to the root of what has caused the issue, caused the anxiety or the neurosis or whatever it is. I mean, we're all neurotic in this this world we live in. We were designed to live in the wilderness, okay? We were designed to be hunters and gatherers. And the way that society is, especially right now, I mean, what an overwhelming amount of information we're being hit with. No one individual can actually handle it. It's just... It's it's tough, and I mean, this is why they're trying this superhuman technology stuff, like the Matrix with the brain chips and everything, because we just don't have the physical, the biological capacity for the amount of information they're channeling at us, and they know that, and they use that for propaganda purposes. But we are all kind of Edward Bernays talked about propaganda as you have to adjust the public, and he used that word adjust. If the public is not ready for something, your propaganda message, what you want to deliver, them, you, you have to feel out public opinion, and then you have to make adjustments so that you can then adjust them to bend at your will. And his whole thing was like, everybody's maladjusted, and he's not wrong in that. He's not wrong in that we're all a little bit maladjusted to this technological society we live in because it's just not natural for us to be born, and it's, it's weird. So... Yeah. It makes sense that we would all have some stuff that we have to kind of, you know, work through. Right. And I, I, I want to revisit that in a second. Um, but you have to look at how these scientists um, convinced most people of this. These researchers did polls and found that 85 to 90 percent of people believed that depression was caused by low serotonin or chemical imbalance. And so they that's a lot. That's most people. And so over this, this study, what they did is they artificially lowered the amount of serotonin in people's brains and then checked and see, to see if they were depressed. Guess mm. what? There was, there was no depression. They found that serotonin wasn't – missing serotonin was not the thing that was doing it. Um, and what they did they, they is an amalgamation of studies. Uh, but when what they also looked at, surprise, surprise, is – more than anything, it proved that stressful life events, mm -hmm. um, trauma, things like this are what cause depression. Yeah. I mean, it, it that seems like, oh, well, of course. Right. But the bad part of this is, is the, the people who were on this. And um, 
I don't recommend you going off of your antidepressants if you're on them right now. I don't want you to to just drop the pill in the toilet and, and flush it. If you're going to do this, you know, talk to your doctor about how to how to wean off of it and move on and see if there's anything else you want to do if you're on a an SSRI. Uh, but because I mean, if you get off Zoloft, you get these brain zaps, I hear, and they're horrible. So, you know, be careful with your body when you're doing this. But um, one of the problems with these SSRIs is they found that over time, it actually lowers the serotonin in your brain. Mm -hmm. So it does the opposite. Um, yeah. But yeah, so of, of course, you know, they, this, is, this changes the, the, the science that we've all believed in some sense, or we've heard enough on TV that we're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, chemical imbalance, sure. Uh, but yeah, they're, the, the best ways to take care of this are, are going to be having a good diet, working out, getting uh, right. in the sun, you know, doing yeah. things like that. But I want to return to your point uh, earlier. Self-reflection, too. It's, yeah. it's like, the, I think, and, and this, this is my opinion, that like, I think part of the issues, at least what I've experienced in my life and what I've seen, is that like we don't, when we have stuff we're struggling with, that we don't want to confront it sometimes. Right. That we'd rather veg out, we'd rather do something else, and that doesn't eliminate the issues that we have. It, it makes them worse. And so the issues are there, and they might continue to get worse, and so you need a solution for them but you still don't want to necessarily really confront them. And so then the solution becomes maybe there's an easy way. Maybe there's a way I can solve this without actually, you know, having to reflect and confront the issues that I, I've been trying to avoid. And I, I found that really some of the best medicine for anything is, you know, self-reflection. Yeah. And, and thought and getting yourself away from the screens for a little while. Don't compare yourself to other people on these social media accounts. And, and then from there, once you go through that, and that's what they don't, that's what the powers that be don't want us doing, by the way, yeah. is self-reflection is the enemy of the global order. Because when people self-reflect, we grow. And, and it, it's like one of the most challenging things because it, it forces us to critically analyze ourselves. And we do not like that. We don't like that. We have to do it in life, but nothing. It, it's tough to do because we have to look at our own choices, look at our own mistakes. But when we do that, it nothing helps us grow more than doing that, at least from my experiences. Yeah, and I think that talking to people, having friends to talk about these things with is also important. Having someone to bounce these things off of and have accountability and help you through issues is huge as well. Um, but one of the things that was in the article that I read was that the um, – the Royal College of Psychiatrists said that they are affect that antidepressants are effective, and that uh, they can be prescribed for all of everything. And you shouldn't just stop taking them now. And I, I do agree with don't stop taking them all of a sudden because you don't know what side effects and withdrawal symptoms you're going to put your body through. So, like, if you're going to do that, be smart, do some um, do some research, talk to a trustworthy doctor. Um, yeah. But one of the points that he had made. Uh, this, uh, Dr. Michael Bloomfield, which is if he's, I don't think he's right because I feel like this study proved that it's not right, but he said, many of us know, and I'm going to say a different drug than what he said, because I want to make it actually understandable. Um, but he said, many of us know that taking Tylenol can be helpful for headaches. And I don't think anyone believes that headaches are caused by not enough Tylenol in the brain. 
The same logic applies to depression and medicines used to treat depression. So, I mean, figure it out. But all I'm saying is the entire world has been turned upside down. And this is the clearest non-state function of a of pharmaceutical companies using propaganda to convince 90, 90 shut up Siri to <laughs> convince <laughs> is, 90% of people that they need their drug. The last thing I was right, going right. to say is like what you're no, talking about. Let me about. respond to that real quick and then say okay. that it is, I, I think that depression and that, I mean, that can be tough. People can really mm -hmm. struggle with that. And definitely there are, there are people who are helped by stuff like this. Yeah. But what, what I would, what I would suggest to myself, my younger self, is, and I actually did do this because I was always kind of like, you know, always kind of questioned that type of stuff. I did try it for a very brief period of time. I didn't like it. it I would just uh, suggest to, don't make that the first option, you know? Right. Make, you know, have that be kind of later on the list of, of things that you can try to help you through whatever the issues that, that you're going through are. And anybody who struggles with stuff like that, I mean, my heart goes out to you. I know it can be tough. People can get in dark places and you just want to find kind of a ray of light to help pull you out. And that can make, that can make us all vulnerable to Absolutely. perhaps going to take you know, drugs like this that may, that might not be in our best interest. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that all I was going to say, I was going to, so like, that's true. Go sit out in the sun for 15 minutes a day lift some weights, have a garden, eat well, yeah. find something you poorly, care about, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. yeah find a but purpose. One, yeah. Yeah. And these activists, by the way, these activists, the recruiting method of people like Stacey Abrams and all of these activist organizations around the country right now that send these mobs of people on social media. And then, you know, outside of Brett Kavanaugh and, and the Supreme court and whatever they play off of this. There's uh, a book, there's a number of books talk about this, but there's one about uh, Bolshevik organizing from like 1950 or something like that, where it talks about one of the tactics of, it describes the type of person, the, the mental and emotional state that the people that they target to get in their activist groups are. And it's, it's people who are missing something in their life in that moment and who need a leader and who are kind of just very vulnerable to be molded by these at, they were talking about communist leaders, but I, I think that this is something that is also exploited very much by our, our political leaders in this country. Absolutely. The last point that I really want to make, and I kind of want to bring into the conversation is uh, it, it goes along with what you were saying. You were talking about how we have so much information now that we're not built for it. And I think it's more than that. I think that for one, we are dopamine addicted. A lot of us. And yeah. dopamine, which is the the happy drug, I mean the happy brain chemical, uh, it is something that we are not used to getting in this level. We've never had this kind of stimulation constantly. So we haven't had we couldn't scroll through and look at pictures of pretty girls. We could we didn't have the online corn. Yeah. Dating, da dating as hunters and gatherers was a lot simpler than dating in the modern day and age. But I mean, if you, if you look at it, what gives you serotonin? It could be, or not serotonin, dopamine. It could be smoking. It could be dr drinking, having a good time. Um, we have abundance and we're living in abundance and we have hunter-gatherer bodies. And so at the end of the day, when you're overloaded on dopamine, there seems to be this this uh, point of, I would, I'll say, uh, diminishing returns. 
So the more you do, the harder it is to find that dopamine. And so once that's gone and once that's depleted, you end up depressed. You're missing yeah. on this, mm -hmm. this little piece of it. And so I think it's, if, I mean, think about it. You, you get dopamine from eating, but I, I think this is a, is a survival from drug. Jogging, you get dopamine. Yeah. Jogging, exercising, eat, uh, eating, having intimate relations. These things release this happy drug, not drug happy chemical <laughs> and um at the same time um i think that these are things like when did you get to eat when did you need when did you feel this when we were hunting and gathering after you made mm -hmm. a kill after you ran down your your food after you began to eat the thing that you had to fight for all day long. Yeah, and I'll, just a sense, a sense of accomplishment also. So yeah. having a task before you that feels rewarding to you and then finishing it and completing it, that releases those dopamine and it gives you that feeling yeah. as well. And, and, and I, I do want to emphasize that I, I understand that there are, are people who get in really dark places, and it's not an easy. It's not an easy way out. Sometimes it's not easy to just snap out of it. I, I, I get that it can be tough, but you know, th there there is hope, and I, I think I think depression. I think the society we live in is is definitely it promotes depression in a lot of ways with, with all the information and all all of the people who make money off of politics and off of news just make money by exploiting the the negative and dark side of it and making people afraid like Klaus Schwab and all of them there's it's very profitable to keep people in fear and to keep people feeling hopeless because that yeah. puts them in a position where they feel vulnerable their survival skills or their survival instincts kick in and it's like I'll do anything to get out of it and it's like okay well here we'll give you our solutions to get out of it and direct people away from maybe more natural solutions to get out of it I, I just you know, I, I do feel for people who feel sad and, and down because it can be tough. Well, no, and, and, that, and that's kind of why I think the conversation is important because I've been down and I've been out and I've had horrible thoughts and I've, I've had intrusive thoughts. And so I know very much where people are. Um, but I think it's, it's funny because you, you've heard people like Tom Cruise talk against these drugs for years. We had my yep. friend Chris uh, Amadon on our show a couple months ago, and he was talking about how he worked in the mental health field for a long time in, the ho in one of the hospitals, and that what he noticed was that people would come in and not be depressed, but after they started taking those depression medications or got off of them, they had antidepressant-formed depression. Yeah. So... I think it's I think it's good to note that yes, your depression could be situational. It could be because of trauma. It could be because of stress. But yeah. it's good to know that you can get out of it, and that yeah. that you don't have to just pay someone to fix you. And um, I think that that's one of the yeah. dangers of the antidepressant mindset. Because if there was a pill that made people skinny everyone would jump on it but at this point it makes people who are unhappy some of them at least passably content and so they don't get off the couch they don't yeah. stop eating they don't stop doing these things and yeah. they and they i think that if you can find ways to take baby steps like i said spend 15 minutes in the sun every morning um 
I, I, I recommend reading your Bible and praying at that point, but I'm not going to tell everyone to do that because not everyone's yeah. me. Um, but there's, there's a lot of stuff you can do little, little tiny steps, walk around the block with your kids, have a conversation with your wife instead of scrolling your phone. There's <laughs> any number of things that we could actually kind of help fix ourselves rather than yeah. just paying a conglomerate and corporations to f- fix us while actually making our serotonin go lower over time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I would I would say this, what you said about one, you know, baby steps, that's very important yep. because we can get to comparing ourselves. This is a bad, really bad part of social media, which is interesting because they've done studies on this where it's like everybody on social media is lying about how great their life is. Yeah, yeah. but it makes other people feel bad about their lives because they compare it to it even though the other people also feel bad, but they're just lying about how amazing things are to get social media attention. No need to compare yourself and, and feel bad about it. There's no, there's no, we feel society imposes a, a strict timeline, uh, strict rules, the way things must be done, steps that must be taken on us, which gives us that measuring stick, which causes people who are unable for whatever circumstances to follow that, sh- that strict path uh, to feel bad about themselves. That is no reason to feel bad about themselves. That, that strict path that is you know, imposed upon us by society is, is not even necessarily the best path. It's a limiting path. It's kind of, kind of created by, the, by globalists almost so that, that people don't exceed their power. So I would say it, it can be good to go beyond that. And, and I would say this, you, people were so trained to think about what our value is as a person by looking at everything out here and what we're told is supposed to be. You know, the, the perfect person in a corporate world, the, the perfect career path, the perfect college to go to, the, the stereotype of what an ideal citizen is and an ideal career path in life is. That's BS, okay? Yeah. It works for some people, but that is BS, and it has made people feel bad about themselves for a long time. And the fact is, it's also made people not pursue things that they could pursue because they didn't feel qualified because of the standard of qualification, the false standard of qualification they've been presented with. I'll tell you, I, I used to work as a as a copywriter. I, I wrote commercials. I wrote animated scripts. I, I, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff. And when I first started doing that, I did not have a copywriting degree. I did not have the type of experience that everybody that I was trying to get jobs at, I did freelance, that I was trying to get jobs against had. Because you could see on some of these online work platforms, some of the people you're talking to, the other people they're considering hiring, I could see that they were all far more qualified based on traditional standards than I was. All of them, every single time, which was so liberating to me. Because I knew then that, okay, if I stick to this model that's been imposed upon me by society, then all I'm doing is highlighting how I'm less qualified than every other candidate. So that let me know that I don't have to do that. And a friend of mine who worked in the creative industry at the time said something to me too. She said, look, you're in the creative industry. You don't have to do a regular resume. You can be creative. And it kind of, that also helped free my mind. And putting those two things together, I was like, okay, I have nothing to lose I know that I can do this because I'd, I'd done improv. I'd, I'd, I'd won awards for comedy writing, for sketch writing at the time. So I understood what, the, what, what was going on and how to do the job they needed. And so all I did was just think of different ways to communicate my skill set to the people I, I needed to communicate it to. And so like I, I wrote, instead of doing the typ- typical uh, resume, I made a, a script, a 30-second audio-visual script. 
into a commercial of promoting myself and promoting how I could help them get what they needed. And it, I, I, that, that one resume I made got me interviews with the presidents of so many different advertising agencies. It got me job offers. It got me so much freelance work for years after that. For that one simple resume that was simply different than what everybody else does. Imagine somebody, of course, they don't do it like this anymore. They don't sit down and look at resumes. It comes through recruiters through LinkedIn and stuff, and they have algorithms to filter out. But imagine somebody evaluating resumes, and they're just bored to death by looking at the same thing all day. Same thing, same, everybody's trying to say the right thing. And then they come across one where it's not somebody say, trying to say the right thing. It's somebody who's thinking about what you need and trying to show how they can help you get that. That Even, even if you don't end up hiring them, that person will instantly stand out, and they will instantly at least be brought in for an interview. And it's like a simple concept that is hard to do because we are so conditioned that we have to follow these freaking steps that don't work for everybody. And if they don't work for you, you got you to do something different. And that's the thing they don't teach us. They don't teach us that. They don't teach us to, when a process that they impose on you doesn't work, you got to change it. But we have to do that. And I'm glad you brought that up. And I went off a little, a little bit of a rant there. Jacqueline is uh, talking about, there's a DPP after party, by the way, at the Propaganda Report Discord, if anybody wants to check that out, there's always, it's always a good time there. I, maybe I'll pop in when the show's over. I did want to... So you mentioned the Tom Cruise thing, by the way. I thought it was strange. The Tom Cruise video of him talking to Matt Lauer about SSRIs was like spread around on, on Twitter last night. I thought it was so strange, yeah. the timing of all it, that. Well, I mean, I think it was directly related. Because, I mean, you know, this, the Church of Scientology is absolutely anti-psychiatry completely, and especially against using drugs for psychiatry. I mean, they want you to get your th those bad thetans out of you rather than use that. But if you ever go to Los Angeles, there is a, a, a museum there called Psychiatry, an Industry of Death. And you go through this museum, and it blames, uh, uh, not Barack Obama, um, Osama bin Laden, on antidepressants it blame it blames all of it blames everything that you've seen wrong on psychiatry and it's the most it's the weirdest and most fascinating place and 100 percent a scientology front if you have a chance and you're in los angeles i don't recommend going there i do recommend going to the museum i recommend not going to los angeles though is it that, that yeah, yeah of course is that an interesting <laughs> thing and and these groups know this they know how to play off of this we see we see this in politics all the time but they recognize uh, a pain point, a problem, and they highlight, they focus on that problem, very reasonable, well-spoken points. And, in and what they're trying to do is they're trying to lure people over to them as the solution to that problem. And in right. this Tom Cruise, Matt Lauer clip, you know, I, I think Tom Cruise is kind of insane. And <laughs> I don't say that lightly because I, yeah. I don't... I when I you typically when I say somebody's crazy, it's usually a compliment. Okay, if well, I say, I mean, "Oh, you're he, crazy," because I, I feel like I, I'm like kind of crazy, and the people that I, that I've done comedy with and theater with and acting with, and some of my friends, they're crazy, but they're crazy in a good way. When yeah. I say Tom Cruise is crazy, I, I sometimes I, I think he's disturbed. But when I was watching him in this Matt Lauer clip again, which I hadn't seen in years, I was agreeing with almost everything he was saying. Well, I mean, I, I feel sorry for Tom Cruise and John Travolta because both of them have had to pretend that they're not gay for decades now. I and remember that South Park. It was, it was great. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I think they should remake Grease and, and have all the same actors be in it, the ones who are still alive. They're all in high school still. Yeah. 
John Travolta, <laughs> Livia Newton John. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Like an episode well, of Glee. No, totally. All right, we're going to continue this conversation in the XR. And what I have in the XR that I want to show you, Cam, and, and show everybody listening and watching is I want to show this. So you probably heard of this guy, Frank Abigail. Do, do you remember what movie was based so on wait, him? Frank Abagnale? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, um, uh, Leo yeah, Catch and, Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can, right. So there's a movie Check based forger. on him. Yeah, he was, uh, he was more than just a check forger. He was a notorious con man who got away with some unbelievable feats. The stuff in the movie apparently is actually pretty closely based to truth. And then afterwards, he ended up working for corporations to be kind of like a, a penetration tester. They would, they would use him to see if he could hack and see if he could manipulate into their systems. And then I think he might have worked for the CIA if, or the FBI, one of the two, if, I'm, if I recall correctly. But I have some clips of an appearance that he made on the Johnny Carson show years ago where he tells some of the stories about how he conned people. And I think it's really interesting to look at that stuff because I recommend the book, the big con all the time. And when I recommend it, I always say, read it with a mindset towards what you see going on in politics and in the world right now, apply what they're talking about, which was happening in like the 19, early 1900s to the modern day. Cause it's the same type of stuff. And I think the stuff that he's saying here is also stuff to think about in the context of modern politics and modern propaganda. It, it just sheds a light on what these people are willing to do and how they get away with some of the things that they do. So that's what we're going to go through in the XR and Cam, thank you for joining again. Wow. Thank you for the awesome intro. It looks fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for watching. If you want to get access to that XR, you can go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there. If you want to see the video version that we will continue doing once we, once we leave here, you can go to rockfin.com slash propaganda report, and you can subscribe there through our channel. Thank you guys again. You guys are awesome. Thank you guys in the chats for participating. Have a fantastic rest of your day.